0: Hi, and welcome back to the History Machine podcast. This is going to be the season one finale, where we're going to take things a little bit different this time. We're not going to have the normal discussion where we talk about particular commanders or a particular society or a particular period of history. We're going to focus a little bit more on some of the applications of the History Machine. Effectively, we're going to bunch together a couple of random people. Let's are going to say we're going to have an ancient world tournament And share with you some of the results. So, we have very much the what if battles of history. And I think that's going to be quite exciting. And we will go through that in a while. But to get started, this episode, as I mentioned, is going to be a little bit different. We're going to address first some of the common questions that people have asked about the podcast and about history in general. A few that have come up the first, China and the East, the Middle East, or even further towards Japan, areas like India. Why didn't we focus on that this much for the first season? In summary, the main reason is I simply do not have enough data on these societies to accurately portray them in the same way that we've been portraying mostly the the Greek and the Roman members.
1: And I will say as well, it wasn't for lack of trying. I think we did. We tried to pad our database a bit, but it's, it's hard to find good sources, especially good sources in English. Mm-hmm. For a lot of these places, and you know I, th- I think the furthest east we got was maybe the western part of India with Alexander, and the furthest south we got was Egypt. Mm-hmm. And once you get beyond these areas really it's it just gets harder and harder to find reliable written sources for this time period.
0: Very much so. Now, I will say we do have little uh, specks of people in there and the odd name that does pop up, uh, similar to the Ramses or Ozymandias, somebody who will have X amount of battles and have a little bit of information. So we might come back to them at some point. But the further we go in history, the more that this problem is going to be corrected by itself because we'll have more information. That's the main reason that we don't really have information on uh, China, the Far East areas in India, because uh, even the samurai, and somebody's saying, why haven't you come across them yet? And it's like, well, the samurai don't really appear properly until the 1500s. There's a bit of a gap till then. <laughs> Another common question, this I have to say is one of the most common ones that has come up to us, it is the question on the Spartans. I have had many a person address that, ooh, you're doing a podcast about ancient history and you're trying to rank people through time and put numbers and facts and figures on them. How do the Spartans rank? What are they like? So I'm going to call this whole segment the Spartan myth. The primary reason is it seems to be, from the information we have, from the results that are churned out, that the Spartans are pretty much bog standard, set your watch to it, average. They're not great. They've got no special secret sauce. A lot of it seems to be hype. A lot of it seems to be myth. And if you're kind of curious about Spartan or Lacedaemonian society, it's well worth reading up a bit about them, because the further you go down that rabbit hole, the crazier it gets. For example, it turns out that the Spartans, very, very likely, unless there's people who are unknown about it, but the Spartans probably had the highest percentage of slaves in a society ever. At times, it's in the high 90s as a percentage. Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. A couple of things to address about the Spartans as a whole. Number one, slave-based society. Dear listener, if you get a time machine and you get to go back in time and you find yourself in ancient Greece, don't go anywhere near Sparta for a couple of reasons. First is, you're very likely going to be a slave. The second is, if you are not a Spartan, If both of your parents are not Spartans, and if they don't keep up their usual taxes and their their mess contributions, they will be kicked out of the Spartan society. They will no longer be elites. Here's another little thing. There is no upper social movement in Spartan society. You can't be kicked out of the the club of like the top level elites and get back into it. It's a one way system. So that's why you can really see that the percentage of their soldiers or super soldiers or their lack of super soldiers just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And even then you might think to yourself, well, maybe that tiny percentage that's left are incredibly fantastic. And we got to say, and I got to say that, Later, as other ancient Greek, like the Athenians and the Corinthians and the the Thebans, that their regular professional hoplites, they're about equal or on par to a Spartan. There's no super advantage. As I said, there's no secret sauce. There's nothing brilliant about them. Another thing, it seems to be that the Agoge, which is like the Spartan military school, it's the one that you're a seven-year-old boy, you're a Spartan, you're detached from your family, you're raised with other boys, you're starved, you fight each other over scraps, you learn how to uh, you know, fight to a certain extent, but that seems to be less of a military camp. And a lot more of, you are now part of the state, you are now devoted to the state, and everything that's about Spartan society is correct, and this is the way you're going to be raised, and this is the way you're going to do. And eventually you have a final initiation rite, where you go and you find a slave, in Lacedaemonia. these be called helots, and you kill one of them in the middle of the night. And there you go, you've done your your rite of passage. They have brutal slave downputs. They do not work, and I mean no work. Spartans don't have any epic poems. There's no Iliad from Sparta. They don't have any megastructures. They don't build um, any kind of amphitheatres, nothing, nothing significant. Sparta itself, the city, is, is just five small villages. They have no great works. They have no great poetry. They have no great art. They have no great music. They have no great literature. They have mediocre soldiers. They have an empire for a very short time as we've discussed in in our early episode in the Peloponnesian Wars. But that falls apart because they don't actually have halfway decent logistics and they can't keep people under control. They have a rigid, unchanging, super conservative political system. And it just seems to churn out people devoted to the state, a group or a society that is uh, xenophobic, doesn't recognise the rights of other people, we could go on and on about these guys for a while. So I'd really recommend to read about it. But here's one more little fact. Probably the best Spartan commander we have addressed in this podcast, Lysander, was not a full citizen. His family fell out of the Spartan elite circle and they're never allowed back in.
1: It's, it's almost a bit like this stereotype of like the Soviet system where it's kind of, you know, one, you, you're kind of prioritizing loyalty to the state above maybe individual creativity or brilliance. Two, once you're out, you're out. Yeah, that's it. You do not want to be in the bad books of the leading party. But the difference is, I suppose, Sparta doesn't have the numbers the Soviet Union had by any means. And also, they had the, you know, horrible slavery policy that the decadent Western nations had, you know, in the 1700s, 1800s. So really, it's it's the worst of every part of Europe over the last 300 years.
0: Pretty much. The last point I'm going to make about them, and this is an interesting way to look at the society as a whole. The people who write about the Spartans, Xenophon and such, they are the elites of their society. So when they look at Sparta, they say, "Oh, this is a society where the super elites don't do any work and they've got loads of slaves and they could do whatever they want and they don't have to justify their existence. Isn't that amazing? Now, if you look at the percentages of the Spartan society, it would be like looking at the whole world and get the percentage of people who are millionaires and that is the equivalent percentage of who are in the top tier of Spartan society. So looking at Spartan society and kind of ignoring all the slaves and saying, ah, everything was kind of relatively okay and, oh, you know, just let's ignore all of that and focus just on the Spartan society would be like looking at right now and going, ah, ignore, you know, labour workforces and people in factories and, you know, people who work in regular time jobs. Just look at these. I mean, I,
1: I don't I don't want to alarm you, Niall. I feel like the political system is having that shift right now where a lot of people <laughs> are saying ignore. All those, let's, and just, let's just, just build the... <laughs> whitewater rafting <laughs> parks for the bankers in because... the middle of Dublin. Ignore the 10,000 homeless. It's fine.
0: Yeah, okay. Maybe it does ring home quite a bit. Oh, okay. So yeah, it is. is it a society that is just focusing on trust fund millionaires and saying, look, look at them, aren't they brilliant? So uh, that's the Spartan myth. Um, we might come back to it again at a later episode and talk a little bit more about their stats and, or even lack their rob stats. Um, so another question that picks up that I've gotten by a few people as well is why do we focus so much on the Romans? And there's this very simple answer for that: we've got a lot of information. That's the first thing, and also because of their military structure, the different stages of it, the developments of it, Latin culture as a whole, and how it has expanded across the Mediterranean. If you were to look at the Roman military structure, you will see direct comparisons to, obviously, modern-day militaries. They have an officer corps, they have a command system, and you just look at that and take it almost as a granted. You're like, yeah, well, militaries have that. Of course they do. Well, funnily enough, a lot of ancient militaries don't have that at all. The Roman system, what seems to have gotten them so far, is this top-down, bottom-up system of information flow, responsibility... A very good structure, a standardization of the troops. Um, this is especially in the late Republican early Empire. These people are armed with the same kind of equipment. It doesn't matter if you were a noble or a foot soldier, you're going to be trained in the exact same way of battle. You're going to have the same level of gear of equipment. you're going to have the same level of responsibilities. You are going to like be part of a unit.'re to you know you're going to get paid a nice chunk of money. You're going to be a professional soldier and that has to perform leaps and bounds over other unit types that exist around this time who might have been militias or people who have very quick training programs to go from to go from farmer to soldier so for example the Romans, when they would do training, is like, we're going to get this farmer, we're going to train him up, we're going to get him to do some drills, we're going to get him to train with some wooden weapons, we're going to get him to train with equipment that is twice as heavy as the equipment he's going to use to build up his physical strength and Stanima, we're going to get him to run, we're going to get him to, uh, to, to work on the physical fitness, we're going to get him to start building you know, and constructing, they're going to specialize in something. So different sections of the army are like, we're the bridge builders, we're the dam builders, we're the people who are experts at trenches, we're the people who are experts at building catapults. All of that is going to be ingrained into that system. And in comparison, the early Greek states said, well, what do you need to know how to be able to fight? And they're like, can you dance? Yes. That's about enough physical thing you need to be able to do. So so now I'm just thinking of breakdancing hoplites. (laughs) So there's a huge, huge difference. And that's kind of why we've focused a lot so far on the Romans. And spoiler alert, we're going to focus a little bit more down the line on them as well, because these wonderful legionnaires are going to carry their way through to the Common Era or the AD, whichever is your preference. And they're still going to be an integral part of what is happening on the global stage and what's happening particularly in the Mediterranean.
1: Depending on your point of view and what you do and don't consider continuation of the Roman Empire, they're hanging around till the 1400s. They've got another like millennium and a half to go. It that this is why we talk about Rome so much. It it lasted really long
0: time. Really, really, really long time. Yeah. And hopefully we'll be talking a lot more about China as well down the line. It once I get my hands on some better information and chat to some more people about what are some pretty accurate and useful sources, because China as a whole has that same kind of continual structure. But there'll be times when we Delve into people. This wouldn't be for quite a while, but look at the Mongols and the rise of of other um, nomad warriors who China have a big problem with for most of their history, and that's when we're going to see a lot of Chinese commanders really shine. But that's not for a little while. When we get a little bit more information and have a lot more that we can plug in. So another question, which is very common, and we did a whole episode on an introduction of it as well, is this AI the history machine as a whole? What is it? What kind of AI is it? What might happen to it? What can it do? What are its limitations? So, Carl, I'm going to leave you talk a little bit about this because you're so much more the expert on it than I am.
1: So I think I've given brief overviews of it before, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, I suppose to go through it again, it's a neural network. If you don't know what that is, is that it simulates how neurons work. It gets input, and if those hit a certain threshold, it carries the signal through. And mm-hmm. those get fed through a few different layers, and in the end it spits out an output. So for the history machine, those inputs are stats about different battles. Uh, mm-hmm. So we have, you know, different army sizes, the different army compositions, when the battle happened, where in the world it happened. These feed through to all the neurons. The neurons have different, you know, weights and biases that feed into the function. These functions spit out numbers between 0 and 1, and they go through to a series of outputs, which basically our values for what odds the history machine had for each general winning, uh, how many casualties they'd expect the average general to have in that given battle Mm and so on. And currently the way it's trained on that is it uses a backtracking algorithm to just go through the database we have until it gets more and more accurate answers. And uh, this is something I think we have hit upon a few limitations. And I think before season two, I might make some changes to the history machine. So you, we will probably have version 2 some of the limitations currently it does take into account the army composition but only to a point because it takes a very long time to train it just wasn't converging really on a reliable solution yes that combined with just the overall training time means i think i might move towards using a genetic algorithm to train it which okay another term kind of borrowed from biology but this is basically You make a big generation of neural networks with different uh, rules, different weights, different biases going into the function. The best ones survive. They pass on their values to the next generation, and you keep going through that. I think mathematically, it's not as perfect as what I'm using now, but for the practical limitations of the computing power on my computer, it might just come up with a better solution faster. And if it does, hopefully that'll enable us to get more in-depth with... um, having it respond Mm -hmm. to army compositions and a lot of the kind of more complex factors of the battles that it's currently not fully taking into account. Well, that's
0: fair enough. Right now, it does produce quite a bit of information and it does have a lot. But as you were mentioning, unless we're able to run it for a very long time with a lot of computational power and with even more data points, so Mm -hmm. we're talking millions and billions of data points, that would be ideal. But the logistics of that is just a little bit too out there. A modified version, a genetic neural network, would probably be the best way to go with it uh, as an update. And I imagine that kind of modification to it is probably going to readjust where people rank to date so far from the earlier database as well on top of that.
1: Yeah, it should do. I think we'd have revised Mm -hmm. numbers for all the uh, pre-existing ones. Okay, so those are the most common questions that we,
0: we actually get. Um, we'd be very delighted to address other ones if you want to contact us. You can actually reach us on Twitter at Machine History or on email at historymachinepodcast at gmail.com or you can contact us on the website historymachinepodcast.com and we'd be glad to get back to you if you have any other questions on it. But by far, these were the most common ones and we just thought it might be nice to address them. So where are we going to go next with this? So the first thing I'm going to mention is we're going to add a certain amount of time, not quite specified. I'm probably going to aim for about 500 years and a certain amount of battles. Now, it turns out that it makes sense if you think about it, but the information that's available to us is exponential. So for example, if I wanted to do a podcast or do some research on the First World War, we could probably tell you with a fairly certain amount of uh, certainty what a particular World War I commander had for breakfast on a particular day. That information just exists because it's not that long ago. The information is backed up by hundreds of witnesses. I imagine for World War One, most of them are dead now. But it's the case of the information that we want exists. That information is abundant. Go back 200 more years and you wouldn't get a fraction of that, and so on. And the information goes further and further.
1: And you even see it with our existing database, because our existing one spans from 2500 BC to Mm -hmm. kind of just before year zero. The first millennium and a half of that makes up 10 of those battles. So, you know, it's, it's a tiny sliver of it. Once you get into 400 BC, 300 BC, anything more recent than that, and that's taking up probably well over half.
0: Yes, very much so. And that that is another reason why we focus very heavily on the Greeks and the Romans, and it's because the information exists and was there and has been researched and studied. But that trend will continue, as in the more information we're going to look at people like Attila the Hun, and in comparison, we had... Earlier nomadic horse archers that we know little to nothing about, but this person will step onto the world stage and will know a lot more about his army composition, the kind of technology they're bringing to the stage. And that's just because it is closer to our current time. There is a less chance of information being withered away and not existing. It's effectively copied from generation to generation. There's less chance of it being lost, like when the Library of Alexandria is burned, the amount of information that is gone from there it's just that the closer it is to the current time the more information we have and also there's another little aspect that if a particular commander or a particular battle which is why sometimes our our numbers don't make sense for how many battles we have for particular commanders cyrus the great is a great example he's meant to have 80 plus battles and we had like six or seven in the database if they don't meet a minimum threshold of information they're not included. And it's just to prevent bias. It's to prevent, well, was that a big win? Was it a small win? Was that a a big upset? Because it would throw a whole spanner into the works if we don't have enough information. And we're about to start hitting the era where we have that basic level that we're looking for, for pretty much most of the people involved. That's going to be a big introduction to it. And it's really going to add a lot to the amount we can talk about and the amount we can cover. So we'll be Probably slowing down episodes, maybe even focusing a little bit more on more people. I will be very tempted to go back to some earlier commanders and look at them a little bit more in depth. Might even go a little bit more into Hannibal or some other people like that around that time who are very big names and possibly we didn't do them enough justice by talking about a little bit more of their background and a little bit more of the the way that they stand out as particular commanders. But that's all a little bit of a separate note and might be little bonus episodes or or... or you know, uh side projects, so there'll be new figures and new people. We're going to see more Romans because they've written stuff down. We're going to be looking at Constantinople, not Istanbul, and uh, we'll be looking at other Eastern societies. We'd like to touch a bit on China, maybe India, and other areas like that because we'll have more information on them. There'll always be bonus episodes on the horizon because we do like to mix in the fantasy with the reality. We did the Game of Thrones episode, we did our episode on the Emu Wars. And uh, I'd like to say as well that we have quite a database on the Lord of the Rings. That's going to be an interesting one when we get to it. We'll get to the main meat of this whole episode. So we've, we've a lot aside there, just our general uh, questions we were asked, some FAQs, where we want to go and what, we, what we're going to do. But to wrap up this season, to wrap up all of this information with the database, we're going to focus a bit on a tournament for season one. All of this podcast starts from a handful of things, and one of them is the reported Hannibal and Scipio conversation, which is who is the best commander in antiquity, and from there, we kind of applied modern technology to see what we could come up with as a comparison. If you want a bit of a refresher, according to Hannibal and Scipio, they both agreed that Alexander the Great is number one. They're kind of like, oh yeah, I suppose, never lost a battle, has a big empire, he's the best. Number two, then they go, hmm, who are we going to pick? Oh, uh, Fierce of Epirus. And the logic and reasoning behind it is he had a very good record against the Romans. And Scipio kind of concedes that and says, oh, yes, anyone good enough to beat a few Romans must be an excellent commander. Therefore, we'll place him at number two. Now for number three, who's going to be at it? So Scipio kind of expects at this point that he will be number three because he has defeated Hannibal. And Hannibal says it is Hannibal. <laughs> So, Scipio, a little bit alarmed at the whole uh, revelation, kind of goes, well, Hannibal, what would it be like if you had actually beaten me in battle? At that proposition, Hannibal replies that had he beaten Scipio at the Battle of Zama, or Zama, whoever you want to pronounce it, he would be ranked number one on this list, and that would be that, and there'd be no problem, and, you know, he'd be king of the world. So, uh, with all of that in mind, we have so far done nine episodes. So we're going to have nine champions. Now, we have had people who scored number one in their episode, but they're not going to be included in this nine. There will be people from different time zones, different representatives. There'll be some people from the same cultures or societies, but not at the same timeline. We will use the median army that each of these people used. Now, if you're not familiar with statistics or you've just forgotten, you know, what's the difference between the average, the median, the mode, the so on. So the median is what is the middle army that you use? So if you have an army of 10,000 troops, 100,000 troops and 50,000 troops, the median is that 50,000 mark. It's what is the one that's right in the middle of the numbers you use? And the
1: reason for this is because occasionally you will have battles and they're just small skirmishes or raiding parties, things like that, where they're leading maybe 100 men or something. And the average gets thrown down so much by that. And it's not representative when, you know, they might have three other battles where Mm -hmm. they're using 30,000 so it shouldn't be dragged down as much as it is so Median felt like a better uh, fit for this situation
0: if you want to say Median it's typical what's the typical army you would bring to the battlefield it's probably the best way to visualise it so Kahal, let's go through our champions now as I said bear in mind some people who came number one are not included because they don't have as much information as we'd like to run this kind of simulation that we're going to do for the tournament. Yeah. And, uh, but we could come back to them later if we get more information and, and uh, spruce it up a little bit. But for now, we're going to have our nine in the tournament and let's go through them.
1: Episode one on Egypt, we have Cleopatra. Originally, our number one for this episode was Ramesses II, but he only had two battles and a rule of thumb really is kind of three or more. Okay. Episode 2, the Greek-Persian War. We have Themistocles. Episode 3, Greek-Peloponnesian War. We have Thrasybulus. Uh, He was replacing Epaminondas, again, who didn't have enough battles in the database.
0: Yes, he just didn't quite make the mark in terms of... We have a lot of information about him, but it's not enough for this simulation. So unfortunately, as kind of awesome as he is, and I'd love to see him in it... Not enough information for this simulation. Coming in then for our episode number four, call
1: Episode four for the Punic Wars, we have Scipio, who, uh, just bringing back to the uh, question between him, him and Hannibal, the history machine decided that Scipio was better than Hannibal, and also better than Alexander the Great, and Pyrrhus. <laughs> um, <laughs> because... Really, like he took on the hard, yeah. you know, Alexander won all his battles, but he had battles that he knew he could win. It's basically how the, the yeah. history machine sauce. <laughs>
0: um, I wish I wish I had a time machine to go back to that possible. Well, it's yeah. possibly fictitious meeting just to add some more salt to Hannibal's meal. For more details, go
1: back to the Alexander episode, the, the early Rome episode and the Punic War episode for more on Scipio, Alexander and Pyrrhus and why. Yeah. They were ranked in that order by the history machine. Episode five, the Alexander episode, we have Alexander the Great, of course, and yep. I think a large reason for us deciding to pick a champion from each episode rather than the top overall was because Alexander's sub commanders got such a rub from him, they would have just been mm-hmm. all over our kind of top 20 list or whatever, so... We just yeah. wanted to spread it out a bit more.
0: Yeah, a little bit of diversity first. And I say diversity, we have how many Romans and Greeks? <laughs> they, and wrote, Cleopatra they wrote in down.
1: <laughs> they did, they did. Okay. Episode six, six then, uh, yep. on Caesar. The champion is Julius Caesar.
0: Who will only refer to himself in the third person.
1: Episode seven, Persia, we have Datus. Uh, episode eight early Rome we have Pyrrhus of Epirus so he still he still was the champion of that episode if not better than Scipio and number nine we have the episode on Sola, represented by Sulla himself and as mentioned yes. this doesn't come down to just straight up wins over expectation because this also factors in mm-hmm. as we said what their median armies are as well as uh what their odds of commander kills are so obviously you know in this tournament if they mm. kill an enemy commander that enemy commander is out of the league for the rest of that simulation round yes
0: okay so uh listeners i'd like you to imagine this is kind of how the simulation would work it's it's very fantasy if you want to yeah. <laughs> look at it but it's each general is going to fight each other general once imagine that they've deployed their typical army and they're ready for battle and there's some kind of time warp existence and they're brought to this open plain field that has um, the ocean by one side uh, to account for some of possible naval ships they might have brought and they're about to do a battle to the death and we're going to see who's going to win and what's going to happen so there are going to be some armies that outnumber other ones but this is going to be a benefit of if you got a great record if you're going to do very well, there's a certain amount that has to be attributed that you're able to bring that many men to the battlefield or that your society that, you know, has propped you up is able to provide that for you. So that will give an obvious advantage to some people who have more legionnaires than others or people who have more troops than others and will help explain some of the results and some some of the facts and figures. But in reality, it's very much that each general is going to have like a hypothetical battle against every other general in a round-robin tournament. So everyone fights everyone at least once. So, Carl, if you want to go through some of the other information about it, just the general rules.
1: The Mm -hmm. tournament rules. The tournament itself is a basic league format. Each general fights each other general once, and the winner is whoever wins the most of those. The league is rerun 100,000 times, uh, so it's Mm 100,000 simulations,
0: so a hundred thousand tournaments, not even not even a hundred thousand battles, a hundred thousand times, this nine everyone takes on everyone at some point tournament happens.
1: The match order is randomized each time, as we'll get into. Some generals are more prone to killing other generals than others. Yes, and you know you you don't want to be first up against certain people every time because there's just a really high chance you'll die and then that ruins your chance at the rest of the tournament. Mm -hmm. So in each match of the tournament, each battle of the tournament, three random numbers are rolled. The odds for the first team to win, lose or draw. The odds for general one to kill general two and the odds for general two to kill general one. Odds to win, lose or draw are calculated first. So in other words, a general can win a battle but still die in it. Both generals can be killed in the same battle.
0: Bit of a mouthful there but the idea is so in each match there is a random number rolled one of three and it will be the first team to win, lose, or draw based on the odds that they've got. Do they win the battle? The second will be, do they kill the enemy commander and do they get killed themselves? Yes. So those are the, the first big three things. Okay. So in this situation, Cahal, I'm correct in saying both generals can be killed in the in the same battle. They can yes. be, yeah.
1: Because there are examples of battles and I think even in our database where the winning side, their own commander dies. If I said, Carl, and I'm
0: sure you can clarify for this, if I said a general is killed in one of their battles for the remainder of the tournament, they're gone.
1: Remainder of the tournament, they basically award a walkover to every other general. They lose all their future matches unless another general who's died, in which case that's marked down as a draw.
0: With all of this information, there's going to be 100,000 tournaments, not 100,000 battles, but 100,000 tournaments yeah. where everyone fights everyone. There might be the, the odd percentages for people die or survive or kill and be killed so there'll be certain tournaments where everybody lives there'll be tournaments where almost everyone has died and there'll be everything in between it so we we get a nice big spread of
1: information theoretically everyone could die in the tournament (laughs) yeah but then nobody
0: then no one wins well you
1: know if if you get if you get one of them winning the first couple it depends when they get killed basically and and how many draws are awarded afterwards to clarify some of the turns that we're using so winning the tournament is placing with the best number of wins compared to all the other generals in that round. Wooden Spoon is doing the worst, coming last place. Grand Slam is winning every single battle, so they're eight wins out of eight. Yes, Getting swept means the opposite, they lose all eight of their battles.
0: We have a typical placement from uh, first to ninth as well. We'll have the number of typical wins, the number of typical draws, the number of typical losses in the 100,000 the number of times they should kill a commander and we also have the number of times they should have died. There's a percentage of times when they win the tournament but upon winning the tournament they have actually died in the process and there's the number of times when they win the whole tournament and they also get to survive. So we're going to look at this tournament with these nine people in depth for the 100,000 tournaments where everyone takes on everyone with the rules that we have explained. And coming in at uh, last place for this is Cleopatra. a little bit of a backstory about Cleopatra. She's much more of a politician than a commander. She did kind of have battles with Caesar, as in Caesar on her side. Her army is particularly small. it is uh, a Macedonian army, which be like a an Alexander the Great styled army, but the median or typical army that she would take to the field is actually an army used for a civil war. So it wouldn't really be up to full capacity, uh, possibly than what some of her other contemporaries are bringing here to this tournament. So with that in mind, I'm going to just call out some of Cleopatra's figures to see where she really stands out and where she really falls down. So for example, she'll only win the tournament 1.6% of the time. Pretty poor. She will lose the tournament just under 20% of the time. The amount of times that she will Grand Slam, which means beat every single other general, is 0.02%. She will be swept, which is beaten by everybody in the tournament 10 times more frequently than that, so 2% of the time. She will average 6th to 7th place, typically 6th. It's 6.46 to be exact, but it's 6th or 7th. She should win 2.68 battles. But the standout figure she has is she will kill a commander in a tournament 17% of the time, but she'll also die 17.13% of the time. Now, that seems to be one of our standout scores. It's particularly good, considering, as we said, she's more of a political figure. That's actually quite impressive. So Cleopatra coming in at ninth, a pretty decent score for what she's bringing to the table, especially army size and wise. Yeah, I
1: I think she fulfills the ideal role for the last place in any tournament, which is that like, yeah, she is last across the board and wins and topping it. And, you know, she, she comes last most often. She gets swept second most often, but she does have, she is in the upper half of enemy commander kills. So she will spoil it for someone else a good portion of the time. She has a good chance compared to many others of taking someone else down with her.
0: That's fair enough. Okay. So coming in, in this tournament at number eight, representing Persia, Datus. Let's take a look at his typical army composition and some of the the standard information. A good thing about Datus, he's got decent cavalry, he's got a lot of archers, but unfortunately the majority of his troops are fairly poorly armoured and that probably will explain some of his stats and why he's ranking particularly poorly against this kind of Greco-Roman adversaries who would probably have better gear and better equipment. So, He's a 2% chance of winning the tournament. Better than Cleopatra, still pretty abysmal.
1: Keep in mind, his wins over expectation was actually the same as Cleopatra. So that difference is entirely made up by the fact that his army is larger. So,
0: Datus has an 18.22% chance of coming last in the tournament. A 1.95% chance as well of being swept, which is not winning a single battle. He will usually place 6th. Uh, 6.31 to be precise. Where he stands out as a figure is he's got a decent rate for commander kills. 18.18% of the time he will kill a commander during the tournament. But almost identically, 18.12% of the time he will die in that process. The rest of his scores are pretty low, not too impressive. But that could probably be attributed to the army that's being time warped to where it needs to be. So coming in at number 7th is Thrasybulus. He is quite interesting because he's got a composition army, part naval, part regular troops. So that um, the history machine is able to work that out. But it, it's one of these things of, we're going to assume that the armies want to engage uh, how and when they can. So you take that with a little bit of grain of salt. This is where the genetic neural network would make more sense and would help out a little bit. But he's still got some decent um, scores and percentages. Similar though to Cleopatra and Datus. He's only winning the tournament 2.94% of the time, so that's 3%. It's a bit better than his contemporaries here, but not great. He will come last with the wooden spoon at 14.05%. He will Grand Slam 0.05% of the time. So these are all still pretty poor scores. But his standout percentage, which is particularly good, actually quite good, is the commander kill ratio, so it's 30.30%, so he's actually got a very high chance of killing a commander.
1: Second highest of these, yeah.
0: Second highest, uh, we'll come to the highest in a moment, but uh, his actual percentage of being killed in a tournament is 15%, so he's twice as likely to kill a commander than be killed himself in a tournament. So that's his real standout figure. The rest are quite similar to Datus and Cleopatra, off by a couple of percentages, but this is pretty much the guy who is going to average out in the total tournament coming 5th or 6th place. That's where he would usually place, but um, overall he's coming in, he's hes 7th from the total list. 6th, and a very interesting 6th, because he's meant to be number 2, Fierus of Epirus. Fierce is a descendant of Alexander the Great. He is the only commander here with special units, as in he is bringing elephants to a battlefield, which are a confusing, powerful war machine, a very unstable, inconsistent animal. So that, that's probably going to explain some of the fluctuations. He made his name fighting Romans, didn't particularly do too well, and some of his stats here really reflect it. To take a look, Carl, I'd like you to actually go through some of these because they're a little bit stranger, and you might be able to explain some yeah,
1: of them, yeah, so starting out won the tournament three point three seven percent of the time. that's fine. that makes sense for the fourth last person, but then we look into the wooden spoon and time swept, he is second worst for wooden spoons. he comes last eighteen point seven one percent of the time. he gets swept the most of anyone two point five seven percent of the time
0: he's the most likely commander to lose yeah. everything
1: and where we come into why this keeps happening to him, his odds of killing another commander is zero. It's not his style. He doesn't do it. His odds of he himself getting killed is 32.5%. Most others, they're having around 15%. He is more than double that. I I, I did a quick check as well. Like if, if you eliminate all the tournaments where a commander gets killed, their win percentage usually increases about 13-15%. His increase is almost 40%. Jesus. So basically, he is quite competent. He has a good army. He has war elephants. But he can just not stay alive long enough to make use of it. It's, it's totally bizarre. That's, that's a yeah, fair enough he one. Just, he stands okay. out no other commander is like yeah. him in, in this uh, in this tournament. He just yeah, yeah he, he just dies yeah. way too often. And, and I mean, he did lend his name to Pyrrhic Victory, and here it plays out win but it, it won't be worth it fair enough
0: so we have kind of been looking a lot at very heavy stats and i'll try and maybe explain a little bit more about them and you know maybe talk a bit more about the people as, as we're going through it but the last few we've all looked at very dreary in the twos three percents the tinies the whatever we're going to be looking at people here who are scoring particularly well now who are really really up there and probably deserve to be it so coming in at fifth place Alexander the Great. Now there's a bit about this, so I'll explain a small bit. He is bringing the Median army. So this wonderful composition, the fantastic phalanx. He's got great cavalry. He has archers. He has siege equipment. He has the whole works. He's bringing everything here to the to the battlefield. But the standout figure. We can look. We can look at some of the others. Of you know the the chances of him winning the whole tournament is about six percent. His chances of losing the tournament is up to ten percent. But We'll explain a little bit more about that in a moment. But the real, real standout figure for Alexander the Great, the one where he is the absolute wrench in the system and he causes a huge amount of damage to this whole tournament, is he has an 82% chance, nearly 83, of killing a commander during the tournament. So he is the wild card who goes, screw it all, I'm killing somebody.
1: Over (laughs) 50% of all commander deaths are attributed to Alexander Alexander the Great. I think this is the interesting thing. Like, Alexander, definitely a great general, but his style doesn't match up with... Like, the history machine, it bases quality on did you get the win or the loss? And doesn't necessarily factor in... You know, there are other factors measured, but they're not the kind of be-all, end-all. And Alexander did things a bit differently. He didn't just try and wipe out the enemy army. He usually beelined for the enemy commander, the enemy king, and either caused them to flee or captured them or killed them. This is really reflected here. So his his stats end up just being totally crazy. And he does. He is probably the one who ruins it for Pyrrhus. He is probably the one killing him most of the time.
0: That's nice. <laughs>
1: but he is a quality commander, but maybe just doesn't stand out enough in the other, you know, wins over expectation.
0: Yeah, some of the other attributes. Now, he's still scoring pretty well. And he averages his average placement is fifth place. Now, there's a lot of big names in this uh there's a lot of big names and a lot of big armies in this list. So he's, he's scoring particularly well. But he's very much the wild card of, if I'm not going to yeah. win this situation, take the other guy with me. Like, he only has a 15% chance of being killed himself. So, you know, he is like four or five times more likely to kill somebody than be killed. Or kill an enemy, not even kill somebody, kill an enemy commander than being killed himself. It's outrageously high and it's a huge spike in, in the data and the information about him. So, like, his key goal is, you know, regicide. That's the strategy of Alexander the Great here in this in this free-for-all uh, tournament. So, coming in, a number four, a rightfully just number four, scoring particularly well, with a decent-sized army, excellent record, and similar to Cleopatra, a fantastic politician, Julius Caesar. The advantages have to speak for themselves. He does have a legionnaire army. He's got a lot of troops. Uh, he brings a lot to the table. He is fighting civil wars, though, so he's not bringing as much to the table as he possibly could. But his standouts are probably consistency across the board. The man seems to be a polymath in everything he does. So, Carl, do you want to go through some of the standout statistics? Even though, as I said, they kind of all stay fairly level. He's fairly good at everything. Yeah,
1: he's, he's across the board, he's on basically the good side of average. He wins the tournament 11.5% of the time. Wooden Spoon, mm-hmm. just under 7% of the time. Grand Slams, 0.5%. Uh, gets swept 06 Yeah, his average placement is 45 So right bang in the middle. Average wins, just under 4 Average losses, just over 3 Dies the slightly better than, you know, slightly less than average. But yeah, really, really yeah. he's just across the board working out as the good side of average.
0: Now there's only one stat that really lets him down, but it makes sense. The amount of times he's going to kill an enemy commander is 3.84% of the time, and the amount of time that he should be killed is 14 to 15% of the time. Now, the history machine probably hasn't factored in that in this situation Caesar is in a life or death situation because so yeah. often in all of his historical battles he's like i'm going to spare the commander and the officer corps and i'm going to forgive everybody that's <laughs> so it's taken that into his style of warfare even in this tournament situation he's like i'm going to let these people live or we're going to work our stuff out when it's all over that seems to be his worst attribute but it's probably accounting for the character of mind that caesar is usually in in this in this situation it's not a great stat uh, there are people who score a lot worse but it's one of the ones that, if you wanted to point out something he's not doing, is he's not really killing an enemy commander. So, third place, and a nice third place, and where he thought he would be in the database, is Scipio Africanus. He's scoring higher than Caesar, probably because he brings a few more troops to the battlefield. Uh, it probably, this could be an example where a genetic neural network might make a bit more sense because it'll understand there's a bit of a bigger difference between late Roman Republic troops and earlier Roman Republic troops. Although that said Scipio's troops are super veterans, so that's also factored into a certain extent. That even though they mightn't be as well drilled or equipped as Caesar's troops, they've got decades of experience. So it's it's uh it's a it's a pretty good stat. He will win the tournament, the whole thing, 13% of the time. He will lose it five uh, percent of the time he will grand slam which is win every single battle against every single commander 0.68 percent of the time he will almost equally lose to every single commander 0.52 percent of the time
1: a lot of what he does it's just it's like caesar but just a bit better uh, a little more tightened up yes And I think the best example, yeah, we have of this is the commander kills for his death. Like Caesar, he doesn't really kill the enemy commander. It's negligible. Enemy commander. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But he dies less than any other commander. He only dies 13.4% of the time.
0: I was going to say, considering we got a rogue Alexander in this situation. (laughs) Just killing everything he could get his hands on. (laughs) Okay, so second place. And this is an interesting second place because he's never mentioned in the Scipio or Hannibal uh, factor, and also because he's a yeah. naval expert, uh, Themistocles. So Themistocles definitely has an impressive military record, and he scores incredibly well, and he's got a wonderful win over expectation rate, which is reflected very well in how well he's, uh, he's managing these Greek troops. Now, once again, this might lead back a little bit to the neural network. Uh, if it was a genetic neural network, it might, you know, not favour his troops as much, you know, being naval troops. It kind of goes, it assumes he's got a world-class navy, he probably doesn't. Um, so that might explain his little bump here.
1: Before, before we kind of get into the Mystical East stats here, you're going to have to use your imagination a bit for the scenario, because all the most of the other uh, generals we've mentioned, with the exception of Cleopatra with smaller army. Most others have in around 30,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry. That's about it. Themistocles has none of those. He is coming in with a bit under 300 ships. We're talking about an era where ships didn't really have that much in the way of projectiles. It was more about ramming. So, yes. <laughs> I think my theory, as you said earlier, imagine that all these people are kind of, you know, through time machine, just dropped into this location. I think maybe the ships are just landing <laughs> on the enemy. That's the best I can do imagining how this works out, but... Uh... <laughs> He wins yeah. a lot he no, wins a lot with this setup even though I can't really picture yeah. how it's going to work
0: now I think it might uh the history machine might have accounted for it because we do have some battles that have had uh, naval against infantry yeah. engagements and you know there's a certain amount of the guys get off the boats and fight them but but I like your idea I like ships falling from the sky crushing the enemy and <laughs> um, <laughs> probably. Does explain his high, maybe shock rate yeah. and win rate, but um, his win percentage here—he'll win the tournament based on his skills and his commanding ability, twenty-four percent of the time.
1: Big jump from third place there.
0: Big, big jump, big jump. So he's a he's a he's a solid second place. He will lose the tournament just under four percent of the time. He's he's got a he's got a grand slam percentage of one point nine seven percent. So that's he'll beat everybody nearly two percent of the time. Particularly good. His placement, he will typically come third. Almost all the time, they will look at Themistocles and say, he's came third. He will win four of the nine battles, uh, rounded up to five. It's actually 4.71. Uh, he doesn't really kill an enemy commander, not his style. It's uh, nearly zero, approximately zero percent. He will die, though, about 15% of the time. It expects him to die about that. And um, he really does have quite standout figures. So... This could also, as we, as we mentioned earlier, the history machine has a trouble dealing with naval warfare going from, you know, the, the sea to land and vice versa. It does have a few example battles, but probably not enough to pull from exactly. So Themistocles scores very high for a good reason, but he probably is scoring too high here than he should. But first place, and there's no question about this the more we look into him, with a phenomenal score. And with phenomenal troops. And unbelievable leadership. And is just a larger than life character. The champion of our last episode. And the overall highest stats of any commander we have in the database to date. Sulla. Sulla will win the tournament. If there's 100,000 tournaments. He will win 35.96% of the time. He has the highest rate of Grand Slams. Which he will beat absolutely everybody. 3.59% 3.59% of the time so one in the 10 times he wins the tournament he's also beaten every single person he has the lowest percentage of being beaten by everybody 0.33% of the time he will on average place second or third he has a reasonable commander kill ratio of five uh, percent his death percent is similar to other roman commanders 14% but his overall percentages just to win the whole thing through the roof heads and shoulders above everybody else when it comes to winning out a complex tournament like this and it makes sense because he has a professional army and he did win two civil wars so that's really him there There's a lot in it and we've got a lot of stats and if you're interested in it we'll probably put up a blog about it and do a little show a few of these graphs and a little bit more details and just how people stand out and how well they do. But our champion for season one with the total scores and in the magical tournament where people are transported to a to a realm where they all get to fight each other and relive <laughs> relive that tournament a hundred thousand times, Sulla is by far the betting favourite. No questions asked.
1: There's a reason we saved him for the last full episode of the
0: season. Yeah, Yeah, he's he's pretty up there. So we've covered quite a lot. We've had, uh, I think we've had to do, we've had a lot of fun putting this together. Uh, We've had a lot of fun going through the stats. We've had even more so reading up about these spikes that appear in our database and learning more about them and going, ooh. It's been a lot of fun and we've a lot of updates to come down the line. I have got a lot of information, a lot of battles and a lot of commanders to add to this that might totally shake up the system. We don't know. But... Using the information we have up until 0 AD, this is how it's looking. This is how crazy it gets. We'll probably run a couple of other fun tournaments. Uh, we didn't have Hannibal in this at all because Scipio was the uh, the champion for that episode. But we'll look into it. We'll get into more. We'll chat about it. So thanks very, very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you've got any questions, don't be afraid to contact us, Podcast at gmail.com. You can get us at historymachinepodcast.com or... On Twitter, you'll be able to find us as well at, at Machine History. So, thanks very much. I've been Niall.
1: And I've been Cahill.
0: And we'll chat to you again soon.